1: Now how often have disaster junkies in the media predicted all kinds of climate catastrophe? Every time the temperature rises, later the carbon dioxide rises. And it's not the carbon dioxide causing the temperature rise, it's a natural temperature rise causing
0: the carbon dioxide rise.
1: We've even got students flying up from London to to support this uh, net zero COP26. But but
0: the real underlying thing is that there is no climate crisis. You know, I was originally an aerospace engineer and... Uh, The issue of global warming has been politicized. I think there are a substantial number of scientists who have manipulated uh, data. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby.
1: Well, just a small sample there of some of the voices talking out against climate change. Some of them are scientists. Others are like Australia's Andrew Bolt, an arts degree dropout who somehow became a political commentator and apparently a climate change expert as well. So when we have this mix of opinions, will we ever tackle climate change if we can't agree that there's even a problem? Today, we look at Steve's report for Carbon Tracker, which is an independent think tank that is looking at the impact climate change has or is having or could have on On the finance sector, are capital markets and pension funds really taking it seriously enough? Or do they listen to Andrew Bolt too much? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Loading the Dice Against Pension Funds is the title of the report for Carbon Tracker that Steve has authored. It's freely available on Steve's Patreon site or on Substack or on the Carbon Tracker website as well. It suggests pension funds are not adequately considering the risk of climate change. Now, it's a quick and easy read, so uh, give it a go. There's there's no formulas, but there are lots of numbers, and not all of them are right, and that's the problem. It shows the muddled state we are in right now when it comes to tackling climate change, or even recognising that it is an issue. But, Steve, it seems like there are two issues at play here which are holding us back. One which is the point you make in the report, that economists are being peer-reviewed by other economists and not by climate scientists. Therefore, they're completely underestimating the risk, the two sides of science, if economics is a science, aren't talking to each other. The other is that the finance profession is completely obsessed with the here and now isn't it which is not something you touch on the report but i mean the focus really is on whether the fed is is going to lift interest rates again rather than whether we're going to see catastrophic climate change in the next 10 years
0: so that is equally a problem oh yeah absolutely i mean pension funds as you say they're looking out for people's pensions and you should hope that anybody's got a pension is going to live of the order of 20 years so that should be your time horizon but because they're financial corporations and they've got all the pressures of the stock market and the share holdings and and competitors and so on, they're basically working to the same three-month cycle everybody else is. What's the three-monthly rate of return? Is it up? Is it down? How do we compare to our peers? So everything is incredibly short-term focused. And it's interesting, isn't it, those who
1: potentially downplay the significance of climate change on the economy, I mean, that includes the IPCC, the inter-government, uh, intergovernmental panel that you know has been criticised so heavily by climate change deniers. Because we've got the IPCC, and this is in your report, saying four degrees of warming would see a 10 to 23% decline in annual GDP by 2100 relative to global GDP if there wasn't any warning. 23% is a lot, 10% not so much, but four degrees is a significant change to our climate. So if we take the best scenario out of that, four-degree change, even the IPC is saying, well, maybe it would be a 10% impact on global GDP by the end of
0: this century, which, you know, a lot of people would say, well, we can live with that. Yeah, so that's that's exactly the point. I mean, the IPCC... um recruits experts in each of the fields in which they're inquiring. And one of the areas, of course, is economics. So all they do, and this is quite legitimate, but also it's quite tragic, uh, they go and check the economic journals and see who are the people who published on climate change and the leading economic journals. And they're the ones who go and then sit in the economic silo within the IPCC and they reproduce their reports based on the economic literature. And that claim of a four degree increase in temperature by the end of the century, causing between a 10 and a 23% fall in GDP, that is a direct lift from the paper in the economic literature that at the moment gives the most extreme predictions of the impact of climate change by people, by Burke, Burke I think, of the 2015 and 2017. And that is so typical of this literature, simply extrapolated the impact of change in temperature on GDP between 1960 and 2014, I think, in their paper, and then projected that forward as if there was going to be no change in the structure of the climate. Well, that's the bloody point, there is going to be a gigantic change in the structure of the climate. The relationships that applied before we hit tipping points is going to be nothing like the relationship between temperature and GDP after we hit tipping points. But bang, that's what they've put in the papers. And because academics do work in silos, very, very few people, I happen to be one of them, but very, very few people in the academic world read papers outside their own intellectual area. So the climate scientists who are publishing dire warnings about what was going to happen at one and a half and two degrees, most of them aren't aware that the, in the same volume as by the IPCC, the economists are saying there's going to be a 10 to 23% fall in future GDP. And what that means is, and they actually say it this way in the report, the GDP will be 10 to 23% lower than it would be in the absence of climate change. So that 10 to 23% means that rather than GDP mean, 80 years hence being five times what it is today it'll only be four times so there's still projecting a rate of economic growth and in the absence of climate change so
1: there's i mean because the, the, the i mean the, the reason why you could look at that and say well that's not a problem because you'd look at you know how gdp would be rolling in a in, in a world where more people are getting wealthy we're seeing more people being Pulled out of poverty into into the middle class, we're seeing GDP growing quite considerably. So some people might say, "Well, you know, in that time GDP might have doubled or trebled." So losing ten percent of that doubling just means we're growing a little bit slower, but we're still growing. Nothing to, to quote, worry
0: about. To quote Stuart Kirk from the, from the Financial Times conference, where he, when uh, he was the HSBC uh, specialist on. Uh, economic and social gains, what they call the SGSG, Uh, he said, you you won't even notice. And that's exactly the way that people have thought about this in the main, it's so far in the future, it's so trivial for the next, um, you know, one or two centuries, that um maybe like if you if you compound the decline in the rate of growth that that implies over eighty years, then you get a substantial difference in between what GDP ends up being and what it would have been without that factor. But if you take a look at the rate of economic growth, you get a number which is so obviously trivial. But you have to say, hang on, what's going on here? And of course, the economists don't publish those numbers. Uh, they, so uh, when they say 10 to 23% lower, that means, like I said, you know, four times larger rather than five times larger. That translates in a fall of the annual rate of economic growth of less than 0.02%. Now, that is one-fifth of the accuracy with which we report current uh, statistics on change in GDP In the past, so it's saying it's so trivial you can't even measure it. And that's the attitude that most people in the finance sector have had. And they are tragically wrong. And look, I know you're no fan of Nordhaus,
1: and understandably so, oh, because yeah.
0: he does. Oh, there's people I dislike more. Well, I mean, there are <laughs> economists
1: <laughs> who <laughs> argue, I mean, at least.
0: I think on one hand, I think on one hand, <laughs> so,
1: which would be in the shape of a fist. Right. OK, well, steady on now. But I mean, so, so Nordhaus, I mean, at least he, you know, he might underplay the impact of climate change. But at least he recognises there's going to be some sort of impact, even though it's fairly trivial as far as he's concerned. I mean, there's, there are some. who argue the other way, that actually climate change might actually help grow GDP. So, go figure. I guess their argument is, well, we've got this whole new green industry which is being generated from it. So if we ignore if we if we assume that climate change will have no impact whatsoever except for generating new jobs as we start to mitigate climate change,
0: then you could you could level that argument. That's the, well, that's the sort of thing that's been done by some of these people. I mean, they talk about you know, you you read climate deniers saying things like uh, you know carbon dioxide is plant food. Well, fundamentally, that's where some of the economists get their argument about a positive impact. From up to one or two degrees warming. So Richard Toll, who certainly belongs on that uh that five fingered hand of mine, uh, compared to Nordhouse, he uh predicted that before we reach one degrees of warming, he claimed that one degree of warming would cause a 2% increase in global GDP. And that's mainly because of what he saw as a beneficial impact of more carbon dioxide and higher temperatures on agriculture. Yeah. And the
1: British wine industry, which is obviously going to mushroom us. As, as
0: yeah. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's going to be mushroom well, wine. They, there won't be any Italian one left, so you've got a total market opening there. Uh, it is that level of childish naivety. And this is what terrifies me, that people think that the economists have done the right thing, which in everybody that I was working with before I started reading the literature had the same attitude that economists are taking the damage, climatic damage estimates from scientists and then converting that into economic impact and putting a discount rate upon it. And the whole debate amongst economists uh, is that, oh, they've got the discount rate is too high. Well, that's not at all the point. They've made up their own numbers, and this is what I go through in the report. They literally, and the, the very first uh, one of this series uh, was William Nordhaus in 1991, assuming that 87% of American economy, which he was using extrapolating to the global economy, 87% would be unaffected by climate change because it happens in carefully controlled environments that are not that are not uh, that are negligibly exposed to the climate. This is like Nordhaus's idea
1: that we most of our work's done inside, so who cares what's going on outside? Yeah. yeah
0: so all we need to do is air condition the fields, and we'll be fine. Uh, it, it is literally—it's so bad. I mean, I. When I, when I read this stuff, I mean, I was expecting bad work by neoclassical economists. They think they do good work. I'm, you know, having spent my time with working with mathematicians and scientists. I'm rather more sceptical of the quality control levels inside economics. But at least I expected them to be working with data they got from the science world. But well, that's not. They've made up their own numbers. And that's, that's why they get these ridiculously small damage estimates. Yeah. And the whole problem with economists is anyone can call
1: themselves an economist these days. I mean, people have called me an economist for God's sake. I have told them, how dare you uh, but you know uh-huh. i'm not i'm not qualified in any way whatsoever um but, that, you know, that, would, might...
0: that, that wouldn't be a trouble because that would mean a phd might do you do better work yeah and frankly if you some... have if you haven't done a PhD in economics you'd like to do better so work every... than anybody right who has. so
1: everyone's an economist apart from those people who are qualified in, it seems to be the argument then, doesn't it so i mean you do get <laughs> uh, i mean right-wing nut jobs on uh, you know gb news and uh, this you know this new right-wing media that's uh, that's emerged in the the uk I mean, you're um, hearing and, you know, nutty right wing uh, politicians as well, one of whom, you know, the deputy chair of the uh, of the Tory party saying that, you know, he's he's he can we can cope with the uh, temperature variations I mean, he went from, uh, I don't know where he was, somewhere where it was minus four degrees, and then he went to Malta where it was uh, 36 degrees or something, and he managed to cope with that heat variation uh, well enough, thank you. So the human race can survive through all of these different
0: temperatures ba- based on this one trip. That well, that, made. that actually, I, I wouldn't mind if that's just a Tory. Uh, as he said, right-wing nutjob, uh, showing that he knows nothing about the climate. But you can find exactly the same comments from Richard Toll, who was one of the pro- most prominent of these neoclassical economists working on climate change, and who has literally, in conversations, said that the uh, in, in, twi- in tweets, which I'll find again, uh, has said that... Um, the actual prediction of uh, temperature increase is less than the diurnal range. Um, And then the people who say this is going to be a problem have not made their case sufficiently. That is garbage. I can't believe that anybody with a... Any any modicum of intelligence can actually argue that, but that's the sort of stuff he says, and he's the he's the most extreme of those economists. But that's typical. But Steve, there
1: are people living in hot countries like Australia, for example, where the GDP is doing very well. Thank you. So, if though if cold countries become hotter, then they'll just continue to do well, won't they? Because all they'll do is that's there, they're it, co- that's exactly, they they
0: cope. That- <laughs> That's exactly that's, his argument, isn't it? That's exactly the argument, and that that's so naive. You shouldn't be allowed near a uh, academic institution, let alone um, uh, you know, be involved in the most important issue humanities ever confronted. right. So it's
1: the simplicity of the models is the part of the problem, isn't it? So, so, so Nordhaus uh, used the Dice model so so quickly. What exactly is the Dice model, and and what is its main failing, apart from its simplicity?
0: We've only got a 45-minute podcast, haven't we? I hope so. I'll give my best. Okay. First of all, the DICE stands for Dynamic Integrated Climate and Economics. So that's the argument. It's dynamic. It integrates climate and the economics. It concludes its own... Mathematical model of the climate restricted only to temperature, so again, what I thought people would be doing uh, with when i before i read, started reading literature was that economists would take what's called a global circulation model GCM, uh, which scientists develop and would then uh, plug that into economic analysis now instead they've made up their own uh, models and those models so beginning with Nordhaus as a dice in nineteen ninety four i think he published the first version of it, uh, only have temperature. They don't have precipitation. So all those people who are about to be wiped out, uh, have their farms wiped out in Southern California when Hurricane Hillary hits, uh, no, pardon me, i say that again. All those people who got their houses wiped out by Hurricane Hillary uh, when it hit uh, in California recently, um, sorry, that's not the fault of climate change because we don't include precipitation in our models of climate. So that that is just bizarre, living living that particular reality out of the um, out of the thinking. So temperature temperature based only model of the of, of the impact of rising CO two on global temperature. No, but presumably he'd then, say that's
1: fine because what we're doing is yeah. taking that temperature as the output from these climatic models. So those climatic climatic models are saying, well, okay, this is the temperature we're going to see as a result of this, uh, which will be our multi factors, but this is the one output that we see as being the yeah yeah the, the the key variable
0: yeah but if 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 they weren't also trying to do it at the regional level, I would not be as angry about this, but they've actually then broken rice into what they call a dice into what it calls rice, which stands for regional, and then they're they're saying what's going to be impact on different countries around the planet now at that point, uh, at the global level, okay, to some extent, maybe you could just model temperature um but when you start to regionalize it, you simply cannot leave out what's going to happen. From t- precipitation as well, when temperature temperature changes cause changes in precipitation patterns, and of course increase the amount of rainfall cool and increase the force of storms as well, uh, which we're seeing, you know, with, with the cyclones in America recently, and uh, and floods all over the bloody planet, and weird, weird phenomena of, of floods. So it, it would be okay, but but you know, at the regional level, of course, you're going to change the precipitation patterns. Now, one thing again, I'm going to quote Toll quite regularly when we talk here. Uh, Toll model the impact of losing what's called the AMOC, which is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. It's something which runs parallel to the Gulf Stream. It's often misidentified as being the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is a surface phenomenon. The AMOC is, a, is an underwater phenomenon. Um, but it's the, one of the main en- engines bringing heat to, the, to, the, to Europe. And so he said, well, if we have global warming and then we also have that tr- triggering the collapse of the AMOC, Because global warming will make Europe too warm, the AMOC will counter that a bit and actually make things better. So he predicted losing the AMOC would increase global GDP by 1.1%. Now, in that, of course, you can't, when you're talking regions, you can't leave precipitation out. Uh, and he then said that uh, we assume that precipitation scales with temperature, by which he means that the temperature moves closer to the ideal uh, level, which I think they think is about 13 degrees Celsius on average, uh, then so will rainfall. So if the temperature gets better, so will the rainfall. Tell that to the people in Southern California. Yeah. But isn't the real factor?
1: the thing that's going to have most impact on on gdp is the amount of suitable land we've got for growing stuff and uh you know there's that's going to be the factor we can't grow as much because temperature and lack of rainfall in well, it just changes the climate generally mean that we've got less arable land workable arable land that's going to be the significant factor that's going to impact gdp presumably
0: yeah, absolutely. And that that's again, uh, when you look at a study done by scientists on the same issue. This is Tim Lenton and colleagues doing work for the OECD in 2021. They looked at the collapse of the AMOC on much similar circumstances to what Nordhaus argued, and uh, sorry, uh, Toll argued, and they said that there'd, there'd be a fall in the amount of land which is capable of supporting wheat from 20% of the Earth's surface to 7%. Right. But that doesn't find its way into the economic models. No, that's the trouble. So that's the we have got just back to, back to dice again. <laughs> so what the, key factor, yeah. the key factor,
1: the key factor that will influence the economy is the factor that is not making itself transferred from those climatic models to the economic models.
0: Man, many, many the most factors, important yeah, number. Yeah, and, and, and they, they literally just think we can suddenly shift agriculture from Ida, Idaho to Siberia. And I'm not joking. There are papers which say that the, the losses in America will be compensated by growing extra grain in Siberia well I'm sure that'll improve American Russian relationships no end well there's a, um, i mean there's know, also the, the, we the could, naivety yeah well there, there's politics as well of course yeah but there's I mean we yeah. could
1: but you know could we engage in and this i'm sure is part of the, uh, the 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 counter to that you know can we engage in more intensive agriculture like using greenhouses and vertical farming and the like or we just get used to the taste of uh, eating insects which are apparently very mm-hmm. good for you not very good for those who've got a failing eyesight like me you can't even see your dinner um uh, but, uh, you know, but generally, you know, there's a way Absolutely. of mitigating against Absolutely. this if we just cha- change our diet and yeah. the way we produce food. I mean, we've been well, doing the, that they, for decades. You, you, you
0: the, the, my favourite paper on this front, which is publicly available, by the way. So if people want to read and see just how ludicrous these economists are, they can download this particular paper. And it's called a survey of experts, experts expert survey on climate change done by Nordhaus in 1994. And in that paper, you, well, you'll see them talking about the incredible adaptability of human societies. Now, what they're talking about is we adapt as we spread across the the, 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 uh, the planetary surface. So we begin in Africa, we spread it over the entire planet. We range from Eskimos to um, to hunters and gatherers on the Serengeti. There's an enormous, you know, each of our regional cultures is adapted to the local climate. And so that shows we can, you know, we can, you know, we can, because we can change across geography, We can change through time. Let's assume space is the same as time. I wish I was making a joke there, but I'm not. That's virtually a direct quote from, uh, from Nord, from Toll, and the paper in 2009. So okay. they simply transpose the geographic spreads which have done over the last 10,000 years to assuming we can make the same change as global temperature rises in the next century, and that is just ludicrous. So what is the what is the best way then?
1: If the dice model makes no sense, if we're not seeing this uh, interplay between climate models and economic models, what what is the best way? of getting an accurate handle? Because whatever we do, we're going to get a range, yeah. aren't we? And I'm not quite sure how useful that range is. Like, we, we, you know, you seem to be saying we're nowhere near it, that the real percentage risk is going to be much higher. How do we get closer to something
0: which is meaningful? Well, this has actually come out of work that I've done and and the way that Tim Lenton, who's the professor of climate uh, science at Exeter University, uh, so between the two of us, we've come up with a method, so we're going to be working on a research project for this now. Uh, and that is that You what, what economists have done, and this is, the, uh, this is continuing a bit on the dice argument, uh, they've simply taken numbers they've made up about damages and then fitted a, uh, a quadratic to it, so Y equals X squared, where Y is damages and X is the temperature. So they're saying the damages are going to be proportional to the temperature rise squared. And out of that, that's how Nordhaus predicts that, uh, for example, six degrees of global warming would reduce global GDP by 8.9%. Six degrees of warming now, what I argued in a paper that I wrote with Tim critiquing the work of economists on tipping points was that you shouldn 't be fitting climate change data with a quadratic because a quadratic the slope the, the, the slope of a quadratic changes, but the rate it would was- which that slope changes is constant. There's never a variation, and that is obviously right. wrong for model. So you need step change. No step yeah. change whatsoever. No no increase in the in the rate of change of the slope. Right. Yeah. So the the model has to have a step
1: change to be
0: realistic. You're saying it has has to be to have any chance of realism, you must have a step change or an acceleration in the in the in the rate of acceleration. And so one two ways you can do that are using a simple exponential function. So y rather than y equals x squared, y equals uh, two to the x or e to the x, where x is the temperature change, and that gives you literally explosion, that's what gives you explosive population growth and so on. Uh, and that that's what gives you a chain reaction in a nuclear reactor, and that just runs until the thing blows everything up. So that uh, you should fit a function like that the, the the middle road is to fit what's called a logistic, which if people have ever seen, a uh, diagram for product adoption over time. It'll start with a very small number of people who bought the product, then it rapidly accelerates, and then it tapers to 100, you know, maybe 100% of the population having a mobile phone, for example. That's called the S-curve in marketing and the logistic curve in mathematics. And we said, what we should be doing is using that curve. Now, what I did in the paper we're discussing for, the, for, for Carbon Tracker, I took uh, data on billion-dollar damages a database stored by the National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration Authority in America, otherwise known as NOAA. And NOAA has been maintaining a database of, 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 of environmental uh, crises that caused $1 billion or more of damages working in 2015 US dollars since 1980. And I took that data and I fitted the quadratic the economists use, the Exponential and the logistic, and that gave me rather than with the with the economic prediction the quadratic y equals x squared that predicted twenty percent damages to GDP future GDP uh, at six degrees of warming, but the logistic predicted there'd be no economy left at five, and the exponential said no economy left at four degrees of warming. So Tim looked at that and said that's. The sort of thing we should do. So, in his paper, which is put out by the University of Exeter just shortly before ours, um, that paper said, "Why don't we work backwards from the temperature level that we scientists think would destroy human civilization, and use the logistic curve back to now, to current data?" Right, so that, we're going to do so that, that makes so
1: that makes sense, because so I mean, it is crazy to say, well, okay, there's nothing left, but we'll still have GDP, even though there's no human. so the uh, so the economy has just presumably we just uh, passed it on to the cockroaches and they've worked out how to become financiers.
0: Oh well, but- yeah you know, no nobody, nobody is well. Not, not many people are saying complete extinction of the human race. Lots of people are saying a collapse in human civilization, which means that the productive, the, 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 the agriculture and manufacturing systems we have, which are fundamentally sedentary. You don't move your wheat farmer on a daily basis. Um, you don't move your factories around either. They're fixed in spots. If those spots get wiped out by various dramas of climate change, like the, the storms we've, we've seen in, in California, the storms in Milan, the collapses you would have seen, maybe you've seen some catastrophic flooding in India recently which wipes out a whole village mm. um, damage you can't have that happening and still have an industrial system so you would go from what we can support with a a, a, a industrialized manufacturing and agricultural system across to what we can't support, we can support without it. And then you you like, you'd, you'd, I'll use one economist who's a scientist who's died since he made the claim. This is Will Steffen. And he claimed that four degrees of warming was probably compatible with about a billion humans surviving, which means seven billion people dying. Right. Now, what what we'd want our scientists to do is say, "Well, what temperature level do you think would be such that there'd be no p- potential for an organised industrial and agricultural society uh, in the future?" And then extrapolate back from that. And that's we're going to do that as a research project, and that will then say this: this is the damage function you should be using, not the nonsense you guys have made up, but one that scientists uh, have have produced through their Decent system of peer review. Right.
1: Okay. Hold that thought because I've got a question on that, but we'll—I'll save it till after the break. It's the Debanking Economics podcast. It's me and Steve Keen. We are back in just a second. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part.
0: This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keane and Phil Dobby.
1: So, Steve, uh, you're talking about, you know, developing a model, a more realistic model where we understand what the end point is, you know, where we accept the fact that the temperature is raised to a certain point. And we have the scientists' expectation of how many people are going to be left at that point. And so the question is, how quickly do we get there? What is the curve that's going to take us there? What are going to be the catastrophic events along the way? And isn't there a danger? I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, using a formula where you're uh, you're looking at the rate of acceleration, accelerating. Isn't there isn't there a danger when you're doing that kind of modeling that you might overestimate one of the factors that contributes to that? So you could be saying, well, OK, this is going to happen much worse, much more quickly than uh, bec- just because in what would be a very sensitive model, you got a number ever so slightly wrong.
0: Well, that's why we're going to do a survey of climate scientists. And this the idea of this is actually given by a recent paper in the economic literature again this is publicly available i do recommend people download it and take a look at it and see what economists believe is feasible uh two authors howard and sylvan s-y-l-v-a-n in 2021 published a survey of, of economists where they uh looked through the 25 leading economic journals of course i don't have a publica- publication in those 25 no heterodox economist virtually would have a publication and look for those you know papers in the top 25 journals on climate economics in the last 20 years. And they got a a survey of about 2,200 economists and then sent them out a survey. And one of the questions in the survey was what damage to future GDP do you expect to have climate change of – and they gave a pattern – 1.5 degrees, I think, by 2030, um, 3 degrees by 2050 – five degrees by 21.20 and seven degrees by 22.20. Now, the median prediction that came out of that was that that, that trajectory would end up with GDP in 22.20 being 20% lower than it would have been without climate change, which means that rather than being 21 times what it is today, it would be 17 times what it is today. And that's where they, they got the, the figure that the impact on the rate of growth they're seeing from a trajectory leading towards seven degrees of warming, that would, be, would reduce the annual rate of economic growth by 0.02%. Now, the annual rate of economic growth is normally about 2%. So we're saying about a 1% fall in the rate of economic growth from a trajectory leading to seven degrees of warming. And that is insane. But that's what economists believe.
1: Now, your report uh, for Carbon Tracker is suggesting that pension funds are underestimating the risk, which is where we started this conversation. And therefore, people's pensions are at risk. But I mean, the, I mean, the question is, I mean, the two questions, really, where would where would pensions really be getting more accurate information on which to base that risk? And even if they were able to adequately assess the level of risk, even if they had that range of numbers, which we believe are accurate over, over a certain time frame, what do they do with that information? Because, I mean, they've still got, you know, people's investments. It's still got to go somewhere. What are the alternatives to the conventional channels, the conventional financial instruments that people are using today?
0: Largely the alternative, that where, where would we be if that was what um, financial advisors had actually thought was the case uh, 20 or 30 years ago? Because this has been happening for 20 or 30 Thirty years now. That's downplaying. Actually, longer, right back to 1972, when Nordhaus uh, in, stupidly trashed the results of the Limits to Growth paper without understanding the the dynamics or the logic behind the behind the paper. Uh, so for 50 years, economists have been pumping out this stuff, trivialising the dangers, and people in finance have been accepting these arguments. And then, of course. I, I, what we're dominated by now, I, I describe as the political financial complex. We're, Eisenhower coined the idea of the military-industrial complex. What really dominates policy these days is the cabal of politicians with financial, the finance sector. So, if the finance sector had been saying, "Oh hell, uh, if we let the temperature rise by two degrees, we should destroy human civilization," I think the politicians might have had different behaviour over the last thirty or forty years. So instead, what's happened is we've delayed, and you know dramatically, and we're now seeing crazy climate uh, events that people said, this is the sort of thing which is feasible if we don't slow down. We're now having it happen. So what I would hope happen is the pension funds would see this and say, holy hell, this is not something we can manage just by reallocating our share portfolios. Uh, We have to get action on, on... addressing climate change at the governmental level and we would have had a change in the political atmosphere around climate change. But that's not
1: the job of pension funds to do that. I mean, a pension fund is there, obviously, just to say, well, OK, we've got this money. How do we how to maximise the the return on it rather than being a rather than being a a lobby group per se and yeah. you know they may say pension funds may say in the short term you know hey it's if it you know uh destruction can be constructive as, as far as gdp is concerned so you know the, the situation in hawaii was quite horrific obviously it's awful that so many people lost their lives but there's now going to be a massive construction program happening there which is going to add to gdp well, now no, right? no, like i so, not going to uh,
0: make up for the damages i mean you know it but if for people, that, who, but people, old,
1: people who've got a portfolio, they'll be saying, great, let's put it into construction
0: in Hawaii because that, yeah. that's, where, that's where the money's yeah. going to go. Yeah, then they, they would be doing that sort of thing. So uh, we, we have an enormous naivety overall. But I think if you, if you had the fear that we should genuinely have about the situation we've got ourselves into, uh, if that got transmitted to pension holders and became part of the political scene, then the resistance the public currently has. To climate change action, I think might slowly start to evaporate. Uh, whereas instead, the public, any and you know, the public will you know, mouth things about climate change, and some people are very active and committed about it, obviously. But in general, people will vote for somebody who, um, who's you know, trivialising the dangers, or. You know, doing Like we're seeing with the, with the attitude that Australians now are developing towards the Albanese Labor government, it's all uh, you know, a shadow plate. It's doing things that look like make action, and at the same time you're approving 100 new coal mines. Um, so I, I think the, the, the approval of the coal mines might not be happening if, if pension funds... We're saying, well, we're not going to put any money at all into fossil fuels. That's going to be, you know, a disaster. Right. Uh, so it's, it's so, withdrawing so the, the, the investment been- in
1: steps in the wrong direction. So, so for example, yeah, Rishi yeah. Sunak, although maybe it doesn't require investment from from pension funds, but when Rishi Sunak saying, well, okay, we're going to offer all of these licenses, which they are for North Sea oil exploration. But hey, we're going to mm-hmm. negate that because we're going to have carbon capture schemes, uh, which is going to um, which is going to make everything
0: good. Which is um, another, another myth, another myth. You know, that's all. It, it, none, none of those schemes have worked. It's just, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a mask behind which they hide what they're actually doing. You know, it looks like it, the carbon capture is never going to work on the scale. It, none of those schemes have succeeded. So it's saying we can continue mining fossil fuels because we can extract the carbon. No, we can't. It's fast. You've got to stop extracting the carbon in the first place.
1: Right. So you're saying uh, pension funds. Have got to have a conscience. I actually, I'm surprised, and I guess there is a bit of, you know, there's you can invest in, in in renewables and choose pension plans which are going to be, you know, that are green friendly rather than earth unfriendly. I mean, they do exist. Um, People have got the choice, haven't they, as to whether they subscribe to those plans? The
0: trouble at the moment is there's very little choice because virtually everybody, all all these people, the the reason pension funds are getting it wrong is they're taking the advice of consultants and the consultants are reading the economic literature and saying, okay, these are the predictions of temperature changes. And they're therefore saying, like, in some pension funds have been told that two degrees is optimal, two degrees will improve their portfolio performance. Performance, so it's it again. It's this misleading impact of the economic literature. And if we got rid of it and said two degrees means you know potentially elimination of industrial civilization, then I think pension funds might change their advice somewhat. So, is there the role
1: of a financial regulator here then? So, if you if you were able to prove that the information that's being provided for people when they're making their decisions and who they invest in uh, are based on falsehoods, so that the return over time is not going to be what they're claiming it to be. Uh, because there's going to be consequences, then the financial regulator would want to know about that. Exactly. And that's, but the problem is they haven't got the numbers to rely
0: on to say, well, actually, you're wrong. That, that's the financial regulators are getting in touch with us now after the, the, my paper and Tim's, and Tim's group from uh, Exeter. Um, so there is some possibility that, the, that they're, they're the ones who are going to be most like, most like, likely to consider our arguments immediately uh, because it isn't just the pension funds, it's all the financial regulators as well, the so-called network greening the financial sector, NGFS, uh, that all the um, uh, central banks belong to. They've all swallowed the same nonsense as well, which is not amazing because most of them are staffed by economists in the first place. So we, we are having a potential impact on the regulators and that will again change what pension funds do but the main thing of getting it for the regulators is we can get to the politicians It'd be interesting actually to
1: see what the risk description is in the annual reports of fossil fuel companies because because obviously again i mean if they are feeding a falsehood i mean it's a bit like the tobacco industry isn't it in the 70s
0: yeah exactly the same thing they fundamentally you know the, the whole thing is a bunch of falsehoods and they are um when when the when they start reading our report and, and, and to Chim's group from Exeter, then they're realizing that, you know, holy hell, um, we've been misled. And so I've got to do something else. So we're hoping we can get the uh, central banks and financial regulators and government bodies in general to look at this literature and say, we should never have trusted this. We have to change our, our policies. But I'm
1: just wondering at an individual level. I mean, I've got a pension. You know, everyone's got a, a pension, of course. And I'm not sure what would change knowing that there's a massive risk presented by climate change. How does it change my portfolio decisions? Okay, I might make more uh, green decisions. I might buy green bonds. I might buy less shares in in the wrong companies or no shares in the wrong companies. Or do I sell my house, buy gold, and head for the hills? You know, it's um, <laughs> which, uh-huh. which, what 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 do I do
0: having that information? I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's certainly not. Ex- um, you know, there's no simple solution for this. This is not a um, uh, optimization issue. This is a, a dilemma, a huge dilemma, and there's in, individuals are in a very difficult situation because you know the, the, if the, if the structure of society falls around falls apart around you, what the hell can you do? To survive. So it is the sort of thing where we have to demand collective action. And that's um, saying to politicians, we've got to take this stuff seriously, uh, rather than the gestures you all make, you know, carbon sequestration, and while you're still opening up more more coal mines, we have to, as rapidly as possible, reduce our use of fossil fuels. We have to consider extreme measures like rationing at some point because we're going to be forced into it if, for the destruction that we that scientists expect to see of agricultural productivity comes through, then you can't let the price system decide who gets to eat because then the poor starve, and that is then you know the breakdown of society. So there's a huge range of things people have to be prepared for, and they're not prepared for it at all at the moment no rationing
1: if you eat the insects of course start practicing now uh at home <laughs> um the uh, it's it's summer in britain there's a few bugs around just give them just see what they taste like uh so um mm-hmm. you, you talk about a minsky moment happening on on climate change and that, that is interesting as to whether we are going to hit a point i mean there's a lot happening right now people are still saying well you know we've always had events like this but are we going to get a Minsky moment when everything changes, when everyone all of a sudden gets on the, on the, the same side and realises that there's something quite catastrophic happening because it's just happened? And how far away could that Minsky moment be? And tied into that question, you know, in the finance industry, they ignore the, uh, the chance of all-out nuclear war because what's the point of factoring in the risk of all-out nuclear war because the world's over? Uh, you know, whatever survives the world is very different. So you can't factor in risk like that. And so, you know, couldn't you argue, well, if it's if climate change is going to be so horrific and there's going to be such a large Minsky moment, is it a bit like that nuclear war argument? How can you factor it in? Why should you even bother in your financial models?
0: Yeah, that's, that is That is a serious issue because you're not talking, um, a, you know, a crisis like 2008 where you can recover from it ultimately and you can move out of real estate into other sectors uh, while the collapse occurs, move out of banks, et cetera, et cetera, um, or move, move back in because they <laughs> they ended up benefiting from the policies to recover from the crisis in the first place. So it doesn't have that adjustable uh, capacity to it. And it basically says we've got to stop thinking about this as a market economy and start thinking about this as a war economy. How do we redirect all our efforts to reduce the impact of what's coming our way, and to start building a human civilization which can survive what we've the damage we've done already, and then start reversing that damage, and that has to be the first priority of human decision making from now on.
1: It's not going to happen until it happens, though, is it? Until we have that Minsky moment. So, uh, and, 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 so
0: yeah, we, we are. And yeah.
1: apologies to uh, any Americans listening, but I was—I've I not spent a lot of time in America, and I was horrified. And it, okay, it was the Midwest. Uh, well, it wasn't well. Where no, was the Midwest, the middle of America, anyway? Uh, and and I just thought everyone here is very selfish. Uh, so the idea—I mean—they're not really too concerned about the people who live in the same street. So why <laughs> would they be concerned about the the the, the future
0: of the planet? And that's—I think it's—we're it, not going to get serious action here until we get a serious catastrophe uh, in you know, America or Europe. That's what it's going to come down to. Until something so breathtakingly catastrophic occurs that people go, "Oh my God," um, then we're not going to get change in the policy direction. And in some ways, I, I keep on drawing the analogy with Winston Churchill and the Second World War. Nobody took his warnings about Hitler seriously until Poland was and, and France had fallen, and a quarter of a million British troops were about to be exterminated on Dunkirk. That's when they realized the seriousness of the threat from the na- Nazis. And uh, it, it, and it's going to take something of that scale before people realise just how serious the issues are. And the reason we've taken so long to get there, fundamentally, the economists have conned ourselves and them, themselves and us, about the dangers. And they're the, they're the, the, the economists are the are the chamberlains. Of human well, I
1: think the media uh, can take part of the blame as well, can't they? So I, mean, I do know if we were to open up comments on this. I mean, we, you know, this podcast has uh, has got a bit of a niche following of uh, fairly intelligent people. I mean, there are climate change deniers amongst them. But if we were, if, if this was being published mm-hmm. in a in a mainstream newspaper, particularly the Daily Mail, then you know the, the responses. You're going to have a comment there from someone saying, you know, the UK's less than 1% of the world's carbon footprint. Uh, why should we care? Mm-hmm. you know climate change is a scam it's been going on for decades uh, there'll be someone there saying look I'll pay mm-hmm. for Greta Thunberg's bus fare to China because that's where the uh, that's where we should be protesting and we see a lot of that going on i fear that the tide particularly with the uh, you know the cost of living
0: crisis the tide is turning the wrong way at the moment so it's a bigger uphill struggle I agree entirely yeah i agree but that that is the problem so um you know i, I can't see us making any any change at all until people realise it's an existential threat to them uh, by actually seeing it happen. If not in their own street, then pretty close by. Um, so, but you know that that implies we won't, um, you know, we we won't do anything until after it starts because the climate damage starts destroying our capacity to do anything. But that's one reason why I want these reports to be read and taken note of, and particularly by politicians. Uh, because unless we start making preparations now, the damage that climate change will do will be that much harder to reverse when it does start hitting on a catastrophic scale at the level of things like food harvests, uh, you know, re- region regional wipeouts by uh, atmospheric river floods caused by atmospheric rivers and so on. Um, we, we have to start preparing for it. And we're not. So unless
1: all uh, economists are wiped out in a catastrophic climate event, uh, we're going to have that challenge, aren't we, of trying to uh, counteract uh, falsehoods being presented. But if we can do that, then you feel like the way forward then uh, is through regulation of of the finance industry, of the finance industry, of money, where money is finding itself, uh, not finding itself in the wrong place. By wrong arguments, that if we had the right arguments, money would find itself in the right place, and we wouldn't be supporting moves which are taking us in the wrong direction.
0: To some extent, I mean, you wanted we we didn't we didn't outsource the Second World War. And we won't be out. We won't be outsourcing climate transaction again, mm. either. What we, we what Putin we outsourced is his Putin outsourced his war. It didn't work out terribly well for <laughs> him, did it? Um, but the, the private sector will still be involved, but in the same way they were in the Second World War, which is they were told to make the tanks and make the ships, and the government paid. Uh, government found finance paid for the whole effort. So I see us in that sort of mixed public and private world in the future. Right, and that in, that in itself is a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, but we, a huge challenge. But if you're not if you're not aware, you're going to walk into it. Then, how the hell do you organise it in the first place? And that is one of the dangers. The, the the complacency we currently have about the threats is one of the threats. So, look, it's an easy read. The Carbon Tracker report. It is a bit scary. If you haven't
1: read it, I recommend you do. Uh, and uh, it's been good uh, mulling over it for the last forty minutes or so. Good to talk, Steve. Thank you, mate. And that is the Debunking Economics podcast for this week. We are back again next week with another one. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics podcast.